Gamarjoba Patronebi, this is bonus episode 2. Bakur, the Iberian. We'll be talking about a lesser known figure named Bakur who likes to pop up randomly throughout Roman history. And today we'll be joined by a special guest and friend of mine, Marco from the Storia d'Italia podcast. Gamarjoba, Marco, and welcome to the show. Can you introduce yourself and what it is you do? Yeah, Gamarjova, is it correct? So Gamarjova, Roberto, it's really a pleasure to be on uh, um, History of Sacarzvelo. Uh, uh, I hope I said it uh, uh, acceptably. Um, I must say, I am in love in, with Georgia because I visited Georgia. I love Georgian uh, culture, so it's, it's really a pleasure. Uh, besides, we know each other, but that, that's another story. Yeah, so I have a podcast uh, in Italian, so... You know, if some of your listeners uh, know Italian or learn Italian, they can go check it out. Uh, it's called Story d'Italia, as you said, and it basically uh, starts uh, around the time of Constantine, where you are now, basically, and goes always forward. So uh, more or less the same format in that sense. So I've been doing it for almost four years, and uh, I got now to the Lombards, so in seventh century let's say uh so a few centuries ahead of you yeah well with the way our sources work it won't be long until we catch up (laughs) (laughs) well there's unfortunately i i'm slow so it's it's likely that you will catch up (laughs) yeah it doesn't help that when i uh, right now well as of this recording uh they'll probably see this in like july but when i'm currently recording it is I thought I was going to have three episodes on Marion. It's going to look like it's going to be five. So, because he has a lot of sources and, you know, we have St. Nino. But I'm like, oh, we're actually getting sources. And I looked ahead to read a bit more. And I'm like, oh, wait, never mind. This is going to be really fast. (laughs) So Don't get used to it. (laughs) No, I won't. (laughs) I know once once it gets to, like, the medieval ages, it's going to be a lot again. So, um, but thank you so much. So I'll give an introduction to Prince Bakur, and Marco's going to give us the Roman perspective and like things that are going on in history at the time, especially over the battles of Adrianople and the Battle of Frigidus, in which uh, Prince Bakur participated in. So let's get started. And as I mentioned before in our opener, Bakur is a lesser known figure throughout history, but he's heavily involved with the Romans at the end of the 4th century. It's actually through Bakur that we have any written information about the Christianization of Cartley. He was an acquaintance of the church historian Rufinus. They met during Bakur's travels in Jerusalem, and Bakur gave Rufinus the earliest known account of the conversion, which is then supplemented by quite a few Roman and Georgian sources in the historic and church traditions. Fantastic. That's fantastic. I didn't even know that he was the source. I mean, I'm not surprised... But but I didn't know about it. That's very interesting. Yeah, and like, has Rufinus popped up in in your research at all, or like? Yeah, no, he, he has, he has, but yeah, he's not as central as as other authors. For example, at this time of period, for me, Ammianus Marcellinus was the main uh, primary source, and then I usually go hunt for other details elsewhere. So, oh, yeah, because I can't, I couldn't find much on Rufinus, but. Rufinus actually really liked Bakur, and he states how Bakur is a great source of information for him, 
And because of Bakur's status as a Kartveli royal and a general in the Roman army, or uh, Comes Domesticorum. Comes mm-hmm. Domesticorum, yes. Yeah. So uh, Rufinus likes to bring attention to you know his status and also how Bakur also likes to seek religion and truth at all times. Mm-hmm. And to Rufinus, Bakur's story of this conversion of Kartli only showcased how Christianity flowed from the Roman state to these barbarian lands on its borders. Um, and the best part for Rufinus is that the person who enlightened Georgia was a woman named St. Nino, and this highly appealed to his friend, the wealthy ascetic Melania. Not Melania Trump, sadly. <laughs> <laughs> uh, no. Um, and then the and he also states that the Eastern Church is, you know, it's known for giving women more of a chance of taking these important roles and if this would naturally pique Rufinus's interest. And I'm going to talk a bit about Rufinus here because he, he's basically our main source for any information about Bakur. And he mentions that Bakur is a very devout Christian, but the historian Libanius that Bakur corresponded with in, the, in 392 AD uh, used terms that would make Bakur seem like he was actually a pagan. And... This brings us to an impasse because we don't know who to trust. Do we trust the the guy who's like this? Bakur is amazing. Let's you know, let's talk about everything. Or Libanius, who's like, nope, he's a pagan. Can't really trust him. He's he's horrible. <laughs> but from what I see from this is that this tells us like how Christianity and paganism were still like together at yes. some points in the fourth century. Yeah, and, yeah these uh, in the fourth century really we are side by side. And we have uh, the intelligentsia of the Roman Empire. That is, some of them are um, uh, Christians, majority actually, but there's plenty still. Uh, Libanius, Libanius is one of the, uh, the most famous, but not the only one. So there's, uh, there's still several uh, pagans. We have Symmachus in Rome, a very famous um, uh, pagan uh, in Rome. So they are coexisting. And it is probably the last time, this is the last period when they are coexisting. Because um, basically with the, with the uh, um, you know, with Theodosius uh, from three, um, 378 to 395, there's this big transition towards making Christianity not just the main religion of the Roman Empire, but the official religion of the Roman Empire and soon there will not be any space left for an independent pagan uh, existence, at least overtly uh, pagan. Plenty of secretly pagan, and paganism will will remain in the 5th century, especially in the countryside, uh, even longer than that. Uh, But in the intelligentsia, the people that mattered in the Roman Empire were only very few thousand people. That's it. And among those people will become basically untenable uh, to remain Christians, to remain mm-hmm. the pagans, sorry. Yeah, I, I totally get that. And it really doesn't help that Libanius' writing style tends to like address Christians and even Christian emperors as pagans too. So he just considers everyone a pagan. Yeah, you, you could see that, that, you know, he will think like, oh no, maybe, you know, how I c- can reconstruct what's going on here. You know, you you will have people that will have overtly converted to Christianity, but still hold 
pagan way of thinking or even actual pag- pagan and pagan of course is 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 our is the christian understanding of believing the ancient gods uh, so it's it's of course when you say pagan you're already seeing the world with the eyes of christianity but you know with the with the way of thinking of of the people that that believed in the old gods that were not in the eyes of the believer of the old gods it was not incompatible you could be at the same time uh, believing any you know the the the, the pantheons uh, Sol Invictus, and think that Sol Invictus can also be the god of the Christians. So that's why also it's very hard for us to pick, you know, to understand Constantine, because mm-hmm. Constantine, you, you you cannot really understand when is the point that he converts to Christianity, and he does convert to Christianity. That's pretty obvious, but when? Because he is monotheistic before becoming a Christian. He believes mm-hmm. in Apollos. He has a vision of, with Apollos, and he clearly favors Sol Invictus for many years. And we cannot reconstruct at which point that becomes uh, the Christian God. And you may even think it's it's a continuum. It's not like a, a discrete thing. Before it's something, and after it's something. It's it's more like a process where mm-hmm. slowly, in his mind, over several decades, he becomes more and more Christian. Yeah, and, and like with Sol Invictus, that started with Aurelian, didn't it? Yeah, I mean, Sol Invictus was around for a long time. Um, mm-hmm. In reality, you know, if you think about uh, El Gabal, El Gabal is, is basically Sol Invictus. It, you know, there are different representations of the same god. And El mm-hmm. Gabal was the god of Heliogabalus, uh, the one Roman emperor of the Severan dynasty, so earlier in in the history of Rome, in the beginning of the third century. So, and before then, El Gabal was basically this sun god of Emesa, very important city uh, in uh, in Syria, from where this big important dynasty of kings they were the kings of Emesa. And mm-hmm. then they became, of course, as usually happens in history, you know, when you get conquered, it's not like the local elite disappears. The local elite remains the local elite. So the kings of Emesa became some of the most powerful people in the Roman Empire. And eventually, uh, one of the women of this family married in the imperial family. So that's how we get mm-hmm. to a gabal. But just to say that Sol Invictus actually history is longer, but yes... Aurelian took it as a as his answer to the question of finding a new religious footing of the Roman Empire. Because mm-hmm. at the end of the day, in the third century, early fourth century, everybody knew that something was changing. You know, they will end up with Christianity was not for sure, I think. But the the entire uh, culture was moving towards monotheism. So at the end, they picked one of the available monotheisms if you if you want mm-hmm. but but the entire culture even philosophy was moving towards monotheism because you have the neoplatonism that uh, that conceptually moves towards the uh the 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 origin you know the there is something at the beginning of the world that is the uh in, uh, no no moving or origin because everything in the world moves but there's something that doesn't move and the thing that doesn't move is god and mm-hmm. that's the origin of all the ideas and everything that exists in the world. 
So even even philosophy, which is the most pagan thing, you know the the you know the the, the Christians called the philosophers the Eleni, you know the people that believed in the, the Greeks, basically. Mm-hmm. We will we'll say that. Uh, so, so even the philosophers were moving towards monotheism. Yeah, and actually, I've mentioned this a few times on my podcast, but the the word for in Georgian for Greek, but zeni, actually mm-hmm. means like the wise ones because of that philosophy. You see, yeah, that's uh, I didn't know that. That's very interesting and very, and you can see how people there, you know, they are looking towards Greece as the wise ones. That's that's very cool. I mean, you know, with, you know, the Greeks coming in and making their colonies there and, you know, Jason and the Argonauts and then the Byzantines, if we were going to Eastern Rome or Nova Roma, as I like to call it sometimes, is essentially they see them as like, this is the big mighty empire that always saves us from things or, you know, causes trouble for us. So then we have to join them. But yeah, so the the, the Greeks are used to Berzeni, you know, the... The wise ones, which I always found interesting when my Georgian teacher told me that. <laughs> well, there are worse ways of being called. So there are so, worse ways know. of being called, yeah. <laughs> but we're we're here for you know, we're here for parkour though. <laughs> so and, Yeah, I don't know. Let's go back. Let's go let's, back. Let's, let's, let's bring it back a bit. Yeah. So Barkour was part of the Roman military for several years, long before he met Rufinus in Jerusalem. Uh, the yep. historian Amianus mentions that an Iberian named Bakur fought in the Battle of Adrianople, and there he is an impetuous tribunus sagatorium in the Roman military. So, yeah. what is a tribunus sagatorium? Yeah, so, and, and let, let's say one thing first, that, you know, uh, these princelings, uh, coming from the borderlands of the Roman Empire, often end up being uh, commanders of the Roman armies. That's completely normal at our time of history, even before, but especially in the 4th century. So you have Prince of, uh, uh, of Iberia, Prince of, uh, um, you know, the, uh, of the Goths uh, serving in, in the Roman army. And, and by the way, in all history, there's never a case where these ends up, they end up being unfaithful to their employer, the Roman Empire, mm-hmm. even when they fight their own people. If they are in the Roman army, then they are Roman officers at that time. Uh, of course, they bring the, their own uh, clienteles and, and things like that. So what is a tribunus? A tribunus is basically a tribune, is a commander of a regiment. Now, uh, when we think of the Roman army in the late empire, that's a very different beast from the Roman army we are more familiar with usually, which is the Roman army of the high empire or the, or, or the late republic. Uh, there are no more uh, legions, traditional legions of 6,000 people. Uh, that was the standard legion of the high empire. And now we have something that they're still called legions, but they're not legions, real legions anymore. They are more like regiments of about a thousand people. And then you have um, you have regiments of you know horse archers, like in this case, so Sagittarius. Sagitta means uh, arrow in Latin. Uh, oh. So so that's there we go. <laughs> Very simple. <laughs> uh-huh. And. Uh, and there you have arch, archers on horse, which is again something. It's a it's a, a new innovation, let's say, 
of the late Roman Empire. They learned it from the people of the steppes and they start using it much more. Um, the army, the late Roman army has been really misunderstood by the classical um, historians of the 19th century as a much weaker force. Mm-hmm. Now we know it was actually a pretty badass army and uh, uh, it actually answered problems that required the change because the old Roman army was completely defeated in the third century, was not up to the task anymore. So mm-hmm. the Romans, as they always did in their history, 2,000 years of history, then they changed it, uh, like they had done before. Eh? Because before, for example, the Romans used the phalanx for a long time. Uh, that's something probably not many know. They used the phalanx like the Greeks. And then they changed it because it didn't work anymore. So, so anyway, so the, the, so the role of Bakur, as I said, a prince becomes an officer, so typical that for for a princeling to become an officer of the Roman army and and uh, have a, a command in this case he was probably fairly young at the time that so he was a tribune he would rise up in rank as years go by but at Adrianople actually he has a pretty important but infamous role <laughs> if you want yes please yeah so I don't know how many of your listeners are familiar with the Battle of Adrianople and the background. So you tell me how much details, you know, it's fair. You know, I have not covered it yet and I don't plan on covering it. So go ahead. Okay. So I'll say this is kind of the short version and it's going to be still long. So what happens is the Huns happened. So the Huns arrived in around the 370. It, they came out of Asia and entered in what today is Ukraine. In in what today is Ukraine and Romania, you, you had two big kingdoms of gods: the uh, Greutungi, Greutungai in in English, and Tervingi uh, or Tervingi in in uh, in in, the, in what is today Romania. Uh, the Huns completely defeated both. It, it was terrifying for the gods because the gods were the biggest kid in the block in that area. No one messed with the gods and yet they both were heavily defeated. So what happened that both these people uh, went to the Danube and asked asylum to the Roman Empire because they could not leave anymore. Not everyone, eh, by the way. Plenty of gods remained north of the Danube and they became the Ostrogoths that one day would conquer Italy. And the gods that instead migrated, and this is really reminiscent to me of Lord of the Rings, you know, the Avari and the Elders. Yeah. And the, and the gods that migrated in the Roman Empire, they became the Visigoths, so the Western gods. So the, over time, of course. So the gods asked asylum, and at that time, Valens, the Roman emperor at the time, he had a big, big problem. He was about to start a war with the Persians, as the Romans often do. And he was in Antioch, very far away from the Danube. And he really didn't want to go back to the Danube. So he said, okay, let them in, but be careful. Just let one group, not the other, and, you know, organize everything so they get, you know, provisions, they get food, uh, we need to resettle them. Now, the Roman Empire did this all the time. Because often what happened in what they call the barbaricum, the the land of the barbarians, somebody will lose out 
And when they lost, when anybody lost in the Barbaric, and what they did is they went knocking on the door of the Romans and says, would you let us in? The Romans said, sure, you can come in, but, you know, we break you up. You go here, you go there, you go, you know, you, you know, we'll break you up. Uh, we will, uh, you will have to serve in the army and you will be not given land, uh, you know, as, as an owner, but you know, you will need to rent the land. So it wasn't very favorable. Okay. The gods were really mistreated by the Romans for a several reasons. I mean, I don't go into the details, but Ammianus Marcellinus, uh, gives an, a fantastic account. And we also have uh, Eunapius, a Greek author, uh, that confirms uh, Marcellinus. So that's good when we have two that say more or less the same story and they're far apart. So pretty much confirms that the gods were really mistreated. And I, and I like that the Romans didn't say, ah, the barbarians, bar, 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 bar. Uh, they just barbarians. <laughs> and they, and they, but they just said, they said very openly, the Romans mistreated them. So I, I remember reading that the Romans, like, it basically gave them rotten food and took away, sold them provisions at very high costs. And the, the Goths essentially had to, like, sell their children to even get any food at all. Yeah, it, it, it's, uh, you know, this is the kind of things that happen, you know, in a pre-modern uh, government. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, bureaucracy... You know, we think that the oh, the Roman Empire must work so so diligently, but at the end of the day, it's very few people, and it's always there's always someone that wants to profit out of it. Also today, by the way, imagine yeah. today with all the technology we have, we still have corrupt uh, bureaucrats, right? Mm -hmm. Imagine in a pre-modern world without computers, without check, without you know where you send a letter uh, uh, to the emperor, it takes uh, three weeks. So of course, the Roman emperor. He was in Antioch. He could not control this, what was going on. What was going on? Are probably some local, uh, the, the local leaders, the, uh, the uh, basically the uh, the comestrace, which was the the, the 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 commander, military commander of of the district, wanted to get rich out of this. So selling, you know, he controlled the food. So he's like, ah, oh, why give it for free? I can sell it, you know, and make money. <laughs> so so anyway, and there's a whole list of reasons. And at the end, at a certain point, uh, this Lu Lupicinus, he um, invites uh, the gods for dinner, and then he pulls out a red wedding, and he tries to kill them. Which was, by the way, something the Romans did sometimes. When they feared there would be a rebellion, they will invite the potential head of the rebellion, kill them all. So if there is a rebellion, at least it's headless. That reminds me of Constantius II. Oh yeah, yeah! What a what a lovely family that is. Oh, what, what family? <laughs> Which family? There's no more family. There's no more family. I'm content. Just a second. What family? Oh, cousin. What family? Yeah, there's there's only just a couple of small cousins, but I'm sure there will not be trouble. Uh, anyway, one ends up being trouble at the end. Mm -hmm. Um, but but you know the um, let's say so. What happens is there is a rebellion. And the, the go it's a very complicated history. But basically, uh, the Romans get some defeat. They cannot uh, quite get on top of things all the time. They always answer with not enough men. Until finally, Valence realizes, okay, the, you know, the, we're going to need a bigger boat. You know, if you, if you remember uh, <laughs> Jaws. So he said, yeah. okay, 
I, I get it. I'll make peace with the Persians and I'll go personally with all my army. And so he goes with all his army and he even organizes a coordinated attack with the Western Roman Empire, with, with Gratian, uh, the Roman Emperor Gratianus, uh, the Roman Emperor at the time uh, in the West. And they organized their, 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 their uh, uncle and nephew. And they organized to converge on the Balkan Peninsula where they will destroy the gods. And between them, they have plenty of people to do the job. And the funny thing is that Gratian gets really close to Adrianople. He was, you know, maybe a few, a few days worth of march uh, away from it. But Valens, he's in Adrianople and he has to spend months and months uh, waiting for the nephew, the little nephew. Imagine he is the uncle, he's, he's the senior. Mm-hmm. And and the people start nagging him. And you really need your little nephew to 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 save your day, you know? Uh, why share the glory when you can have the glory all for yourself? You know? And and you know the scouts. You know one of the things that Romans were really bad at are the, is scouting. So the scouts told him, "Oh, it's ten thousand gods tops. So you know you, you you'll be fine." They, he probably brought twenty five. 30,000 people as soldiers and not mm-hmm. only good number these are the best soldiers uh the uh the roman the eastern roman empire has by far you know they're they're most because at this time of of the the late roman army has different ranks of quality of mm-hmm. of, of so they're not all legions all the same uh you you have the um, basically, the limitani are the, the the troops for defending forts and cities. Uh, then you have comitatensis, which are the field armies, and then you have the palatine, uh, you know, the, from from palace, you know, the palatine mm-hmm. troops. And he has brought the palatine troops and the best comitatensis. So this is the the best of the best. And uh, and you know they say, okay, there's a, the scout says ten thousand. Let's go meet them in battle. So what happens is that then, and this is very interesting, uh, the leader of the gods, Fritigern, sends envoys saying, let's, you know, let, you know, we, we came here, we were granted a, a treaty, we want to go back to the treaty, let's forget all these two years of war. Why, why show, what, can't we be friends <laughs> again? And, uh, and that's, a, of course, it's taken as a sign of weakness. And then Fritigern, even at, I mean, at least Amianus Marcellinus tells us that Fritigern sent, so, you know, you can't trust 100% uh, ancient sources, but he says that, and, and this sounds realistic, that he sent a secret letter to the emperor saying, you know, my, the council of my, the, the head of the gods, they, they don't want to come to terms that are too unfavorable. But if you put your army in front of them and they see the entire army, the entire freaking Roman army you brought, I'm pretty sure they'll be willing to negotiate. And I will sustain the negotiating position as long as I have guarantee from you that I will get a Roman command. Which, again, was a completely normal thing mm-hmm. of a god, even a defeated god. You defeat a god, then okay, let's make him a Roman commander. It's completely something in the realm of possibilities. So we are one day from the battle and these guys are talking. And by the way, the, the, um, uh, this is another f- interesting thing. 
who is the ambassador of the gods? Is a Christian priest. Because the gods had already started to convert to Christianity. Uh, we have a very famous uh, god called Ulfilas. Ulfilas. Mm-hmm. Uh, he's he's um, the little, little wolf, right, in, in God. And he is actually the first um, known translation of the Bible that is not in Greek or Latin. Uh, so this is uh, was translated into God, uh, and we know this. Okay, may, now I'm going a little bit on. A no, topic. no, no, keep going, keep going. I'm interested. Uh, so we know this thanks to an incredible book, which today is in Uppsala in Sweden. This book was made in the sixth century in Ostrogoth, Italy. So Theodoric the Great is the oh. king of Italy, and Theodoric the Great is basically the closest thing to a Roman emperor, a god became you know it, it was really really close to being a roman emperor and he made this book all in the purple imperial purple uh, in vellum which was the most expensive material all written in silver and gold letters so the the value of this thing even at the time just made was incredible but the value of it is that the only piece of literature uh, in goth with the gothic alphabet so there's a special alphabet. It was developed just to translate Gothic. And, and this is the first Germanic piece of literature ever. Oh my gosh, that is so and, cool. And so this is, uh, this is incredible. And the incredible thing is that Ulfilas was an Aryan. I mean, he was perceived as Aryan. So Arianism, of course, is the, uh, the mm. doctrine that was defeated at Nicaea. Um, he, probably if you asked Ulfilas, he wouldn't say I'm Aryan, uh, you know, but anyway, that's too complicated. So anyway, so the gods, the gods, yeah, it's too complicated. Get to Musian and uh, Mousian, uh, we're not, I'm not but, covering uh, that. We don't need to cover it in my region. No, so we're good. no, no, that's no one. No one needs that. So, um, so back to Adrianopo, um, this, the, the balance refuses to, to negotiate. So he says, no, no, we're gonna, we're gonna fight them. So the next day, they arrive after a long march in the sun, scorching sun of August. If you have been in the Balkans in August, I tell you, it's really hot. And they arrive in front of the gods. And the gods, they have this, uh, it's called a lager. It's not the lager, the infamous lager, but it's, it's basically a, uh, they put uh, their uh, carriage in to form an accompaniment, a bit like the pioneers in the, in the, in the American West but a lot bigger, you know, like, you know, this is a place to put 10,000 people in. And these, they lock in this carriage to form really like a barrier. And they are on top of a hill. And so, you know, strong position again. But the Romans think, eh, we are are 30,000, they're 10,000. But then they start having doubts. Are they really 10,000? Maybe there are a few more. And then there's another embassy of the gods saying, are you sure? Can't we have an agreement at that point Valens and this is the day of the battle Valens says maybe we should maybe we should but but you know this point you know I want to negotiate directly with Fritiger but Fritiger doesn't want to go there without guarantees so he asks I want some hostage to be in our encampment high ranking Roman mm-hmm. officer and the guy that that goes by the way they, they have a discussion the Romans and they say 
Uh, I don't want to go. I don't, you know, they said, why don't you go? I says, eh, you know, why can't he go? <laughs> so anyway, so at the end, uh, you know, a guy says, and he's like, oh, I am strong. This is a Rico Meres. Again, Frank, you know, Wait, so he, he's a Frank. Uh, Rico Meres, yeah. Uh, no, like the, the general from the, no, couldn't be. He'd be dead by then. The, wrong person, sorry. <laughs> no, 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 it's not uh, Rico Meres uh, uh, that become... Then, then you know, one of the uh, de facto Roman emperors in the fifth century. This is the same kind of name. He's a prince of the Franks that has mm-hmm. become a Roman a Roman general, like it happens all the time. So he is he was serving in the West, and then he was sent by the Western Roman emperor to to help balance. Basically, he's kind of the uh, negotiation. The, the, you know how, how they call it, you know the the military attaché. You know, yeah, yeah. There we go. Yeah. There you go. So, and he says, Rickmer says, okay, I'll go. And, and so they're, they're arranging this. I, sorry if I said all this, but because we get to the point of Bakur and why it's so important. So, it, but then what happens is that, you know, you have two armies, one in front of each other, and they're still maneuvering to get into position for battle. And the left flank of the Romans has not really deployed, fully deployed yet. The center is deployed, the right wing is deployed, but the left has not de- fully deployed yet. They are negotiating for doing this uh, agreement. So the, the soldiers probably think there's not going to be a battle today because it's already late in the day. These guys have been walking 17 kilometers from, from the incumbent to this place. So it's, it's late. We're in the afternoon. So eh, it's not going to be a battle today. And then what happens, and this is very difficult to entangle what happened but usually when you have tens of thousands of people in, with weapons in front of each other you know in, in the famous, in the movies you always have somebody that that is holding an arc and then you know like uh, the battle of helms deep and then shoots the arrow and yeah. then all the orcs probably something like that happened either the gods did something or bakur did something but what we know is that bakur attacked Uh, and then, and he attacked before the battle was without any authorization to start the battle. And, and he, again, sometimes there are, there are these little skirmish, and they are just skirmish. But for some reason, probably the people just wanted to fight. You know, they've been waiting to fight for so long. So the Roman the Roman army just said, "Ah, fuck it, <laughs> let's go." And so they so they started the battle like that because of Bakur. <laughs> they started because of the unit of Bakur, but you know, he, he, either he started it or he didn't put it under control. So you're, what you're saying is it is Bakur the Iberian's fault that the Battle of Adrianople happened. Oh my god. Yeah. I could not find that at all in my research. That is amazing. Isn't it? Isn't it? And this is the battle that usually is credited for killing the Roman Empire. Now it's not true that he killed the Roman Empire, but it is it is a pretty big deal, this battle. I'm just going to say, hot take. Georgia killed the Roman Empire. I'm going to put yes. that as my tagline now. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Georgia killed the Roman Empire. We can say it. We can say it. At this point, you know, if A is B and B is C, then A is C, right? So, exactly. Uh, so, <laughs> I'm, I'm going to put that on Twitter pretty soon. It's like, yep, Georgia had an interview with Marco from Sordia Italia. <laughs> Too long, didn't read. Georgia killed the Roman Empire. <laughs> and, and everybody would be like, what? <laughs> How? <laughs> 
because if you know the story how this ends, the 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 army charged uphill against the gods, and they were about to break in. So because these are the best Roman soldiers, and mm. they reached the encampment, the gods were almost uh, with the back on the wall. But what happens at that exact moment? And who knows, maybe Frittiger was trying to buy time of the negotiations to reach this point, or maybe not. We will never know. But at this exact moment, 10,000 gods or whereabouts, the entire cavalry of the gods explodes in the left, where the Romans had not completely formed yet because the battle started without preparation. And and what happened was that the, the cavalry of the gods Complete sur- achieved complete surprise on the left flank, destroyed the cavalry that was defending the infantry. So then what they do, they swing around and they attack from the back the infantry. Then, then what you have is the typical worst possible position an army can find itself, attacked on three fronts and without possibility to move. What Amianus says is that the, the infantry kept getting a closer and closer space so they could not maneuver anymore. So, so your number don't count anymore. So is it like the thing in Game of Thrones when like... Exactly. It, where they're, exactly. Like they're completely encircled and... They cannot move. They cannot breathe. They cannot move. They, so it doesn't matter how many you are. You can even be more than your opposing number. But if you if if just one line behind you, no one can intervene in the battle... That person doesn't matter. It doesn't exist. So, so this is the this is the situation that it, it gets to that point, and the infantry cannot disengage. Normally, the Romans were able to disengage if things got really bad. They could disengage, you know, save at least at least the army or most of it, even if you have a defeat. In this case, it's complete annihilation. So the entire army, at least two thirds of the army, and normally these battles. N- it was very rare that, that one third, you know, was a tra- terrible defeat to get one third of your army destroyed. And here you have at least two thirds completely wiped out to the point that those units will never be reformed. So we know that those units, they die at Adrianople and they're not remade because they, they, they die all the officers. You know, if you have a few officers survive, you can rebuild that unit because the officers have the knowledge of how to fight, but no one survives here. Uh, so, except the few that could disengage. Uh, and Bakur survives. Bakur is one of the lucky ones. And he started it, and he's <laughs> one of the lucky ones that survived. I mean, you know, the chances are not very good, but Bakur was mounted. So, you know, also several mounted units do not survive, but, you know, the mounted units on the right, especially probably have the best chances of disengaging because they're far away from the left because Bakur was on the right. Sorry, I didn't mention that. He started the, oh. all that on the right. So, you know, so that's uh, that's why he probably survived. And one that didn't survive was the emperor that died ah, there. It's, it's just a Roman emperor. He's not important. Yeah, who cares? He's not Valentinian, you know? Um, yeah, exactly. <laughs> but it's, it's funny because in my head, when you're saying, you know, with Bakur, this whole thing happening to the Romans, and Bakur surviving, it just reminds me of the classic, like, Georgian tactic of running into the mountains and hiding. 
<laughs> so he probably knew how to do that. <laughs> so like, and so, you know, and you said they're fighting in the Balkans, and so basically my whole and they're going uphill. So I'm like, so Bakur the Iberian just did what is you know what his people do best, and they see it. They see a, a, a battle they can't win, so they just ride into the mountains and just hide until the enemies go away. Go- goodbye, <laughs> but- like goodbye, Romans. <laughs> to be fair, all the units there that could escape they ran because mm-hmm. that's the normal and logical thing to do in that case you have to run it's just stupid you're going just to make the defeat worse if you stay uh, yeah so so at the end uh, i i don't blame in that sense he did what he had to do plenty of other roman generals survived but many we know of at least 30 generals that died there so there is a there's, there's, it's, it's that like an entire, imagine an entire officer corps that dies there. So it's, oh it's a gosh. big deal. Wow, that is, wow. I'm uh, still uh, thinking Georgia killed the Roman Empire. Exactly, it's <laughs> It's all, it's all, it's all Georgia's fault. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, you're you're married to an Armenian, so of course you're gonna say that. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. Of course, of course. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> But it's 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 funny because Bakur right away he started the battle he ran away, and then he gets promoted. He gets promoted. I guess you know when most of your competitor, let's say, die, that helps your uh, career prospect. I guess. Yeah. So like, <laughs> so Bakur literally becomes you know he becomes Duke Palestine. Uh, and yeah, yeah. and you know the Duke of Palestine basically, and then he becomes Scopus Domesticorum from like three seventy eight to three ninety four. Yeah. But um, some historians think that this might not be the same Bakur. Okay, because Bakur is a very popular name among the Kartveli elite. So it's they're saying it, it might be. not be. It couldn't be the same person, but if they're going for a royal prince. Then I'm guessing yeah. it has to be the same person because. If you're saying, you know, all these princelings become generals, it's just one after the other. But this is just yeah. a, a thing where it might not be him because it's so popular, but it probably is him. It probably is because it's such a typical career we we're mm-hmm. talking about that it looks like the atypical career of a Roman officer going yeah. forward. And having the confirmation of Rufinus <laughs> that talks about him uh, in the intervening years, so we know he was around. So... Mm-hmm. I will say certainty not, but I I will say it's probable that he's the same person. Yeah, I'm I'm also gonna say it's he's probably not like an inheriting son because right now with no. King with King Mirian he has a son named Rev, and then he also has someone named another son named Varaz Bakur or mm-hmm. Apascurus Apascurus, which is I just use the Georgian names because it's so much easier. No, no, of course, of course, of course. Go ahead. So like, so like Varaz Bakur is the second son, but he was he went to Constantinople with Constantine. So he was he was raised as a hostage in Constantinople, and yeah. then was sent back by. Yeah, but that's once Constantine converted. He sent him back. Yeah, but that's basically. too early. That's too early because that's this way Bakur, too early, yeah, this Bakur uh, to be. He was probably a fairly young lad at mm-hmm. uh, Adrianople, out, you know, a tribunus in his 20s or early 30s, I would say, for a tribunus. Uh, so I, so that means that he was probably, by my calculation, born 340 to 350. 
Uh, even later than that, even later than that. So, which would make sense for King Mirian because Mirian dies in three sixty one. So it could be like, and, a, he, and young... he has two sons. So it could be one of the sons of his sons, basically. Oh, yeah, like a, like a nephew, like a, a nephew, nephew. Yeah, but not not in the main line because that that's what happens with this uh, cadet. You know, you you have mm-hmm. the you, you know you have the main hair. That happens also today. You have the main hair. And then you have, you know, the the younger brother. What do you do with him? Uh, send him to to have a career in the Roman Empire, so he'll make uh, himself a big name. You know, these positions are really nice. Eh? These you get a big salary for for being an officer in the Roman army. To the point that some kings of small kingdoms they prefer to be an officer in the Roman army. Sometimes some heirs to kingdoms say, eh, you know. King or Magister Militum, you know, Magister Militum is nice. So yeah, especially with how much the Romans keep upping the pay with every new emperor. Yeah, no, they give you extra bonus. You know, it's not just the pay; they give you extra bonus every five years. They pay you more if there is a campaign; it's extra money. And um, then the, uh, you and know, then, if you have five emperors in one year, it's a lot of money. You know, and the Magister Militum, you know, he gets like. Uh, 20 secretaries and you know a whole staff uh, you know big house property you know it's mm-hmm. it's a good it's a good gig it's a good it's gig a... <laughs> <laughs> i would like that <laughs> if you can get there of course because the competition is strong there's only five magister militum in the east eastern roman uh, army um and so but there's a uh, i don't remember the exact number but about 15 comes Comes is basically the count. So count mm-hmm. comes from comes. Uh, I don't know if you already explained that. And uh, as not, you said, and, and as you said, the duke, the dukes come dukes becomes duke. So dukes uh, basically uh, this may be another interesting thing, I don't know, tidbit. So how was the Roman army organized at this time? Not before. This is not the organization of the I Empire. So you had a complete separation of civil and military which you didn't have in the high empire. So the governor was also the, the commander of the army in his, in his region. Uh, now you have uh, careers for, for civilians, bureaucrats, and a career for military. And the military typically have these three big ranks. The duke, dukes typically commands uh, the, uh, the troops of a, of a border province, like Palestina or Arabia or uh, Syria. Uh, and he will have some troops, but mostly of the lower ranking, so the limitanei, so the, the, the one of the border kind of uh, troops. A comes uh, usually has several dukes under him, and he commands the field army of that region. So you have a, 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 a comes uh, Egypti, you have a comes Trace uh, in, in, in Tracia, Trachia, depends on the pronunciation here in Latin. Um, and then you have a Magister Militum, the Magister Militum in the East under Theodosius, because he did a small reform, but this will remain the same also under Justinian. So what I'm saying now, imagine it all the way to the 6th century. So you have five Magister Militum, two Magister Militum Presentalis, so at the presence of the emperor. So they're mm-hmm. basically in his general staff. Uh, and there are two because you, you cannot have just one because one may be, become more powerful than the emperor. So you can use one against the other, you know. Yeah. That's a general rule. That's why many states, countries have two police 
Why, why having two police when you can have one? Eh, it's better not to have just one police and one mm-hmm. head of the police. So you, there are two Magister Militum Presentalis, and then you have a Magister Militum of Illyricum, so the, the Western Balkans, Magister Militum of uh, Tracia, so the, the uh, Eastern Bal- Balkans, and then you have a Magister Militum or, uh, Per Orientem, so in the East, which is the, you, what you will deal mostly uh, the Magister Militum of the all eastern border. Then Justinian will make a reform and will create the Magister Militum uh, per Armenian, uh, which, uh, mm-hmm. of course, is the in the, the Armenian region. Which we might run into a little bit in my podcast. <laughs> you may, you may. I think you will. <laughs> if, if, it, if it involves Armenia, it'll probably involve Georgia. You know, yeah, it, it, it does, because, of course, it's per Armenian, because they mean, uh, you know... You know, the mountains is the Magister yeah. Militum of, you know, those people there in the mountains. Everybody those, those crazy mountain people, you know. Um, <laughs> exactly. So, like, it's it's kind of funny because you said that Gomez basically turns into Count and the Duke becomes a Duke. But, like, in our, like, how we see it, like, the Count is below a Duke usually. And, like, yeah. and here it's reversed. Yeah, yeah. It's oh, during the Middle Ages, all these titles were still used. Um, and they were still around, uh, but then, of course, centuries happens and things change, change. Yeah. <laughs> all the time. And Magister Militum disappears as a rank. Mm-hmm. Uh, we don't have an equivalent rank in no, nobilia, noble rank. Uh, so, so you know, things happen. Yeah, and like it doesn't help that not much is known about Bakur because in 394 AD, Zosima says that. The prince was part of the Battle of Frigidus, in which yeah. he lost his life. So, what exactly happened in the Battle of Frigidus? Ah, that's uh, that's that's uh, again it will require a little bit of time to explain. So, after Adrianople complete destroy of the Eastern um, Comitatus, so the, the the field army, and what happens is that uh, the Western Roman Emperor appoints a new Eastern Roman Emperor outside of his family, Theodosius. Some call him Theodosius the Great. I call him Theodosius the Maybe Great. Uh, He's okay. He's okay. (laughs) Exactly. So Theodosius, in a way, Theodosius and Gratian together, over time, slowly, they managed to bring the gods under control, simplifying things. But most of the gods are enrolled in in the Roman army. Fast forward a few uh, years, and in 383... Uh, Gratian dies because uh, basically a usurper, a friend of Theodosius, so that's very suspicious to me. He rebels in Britain, and he comes to the comes to Gaul, basically kills uh, Gratian, and becomes unofficially for Theodosius the uh, Western Roman Emperor. Then Theodosius defeats him um, in a big campaign in three eighty eight, and. And after this, uh, so I'm this I'm fast forwarding to, to get to Frigidus. Uh, he appoints uh, basically Gratian, this the Western Roman Emperor had a little brother called Valentinian II, and he never ruled anything because he was always too young, was always somebody bossing him around. And Theodosius, not to change anything, decides to have somebody else to boss him around. 
So to make him uh, uh, like a, just a figurehead. And the guy to boss him around is Arbogastis or Arbogaste. I know him as Arbogaste in Italian, Arbogastes in, in Latin. And he is a, a Frank Roman general. And we don't know what happens, but for real, we know that Valentinian II, that he was in the 20s now, he tried to assert himself to the point that he fired Arbogastes and said, you know, you, you know you're just a magister militum. I'll fire you. I'm the emperor. And, and basically, we have in the story that Arbogastes did exactly the scene, the typical scene where he goes like and rips the piece of paper in front of Valentina and says, you're telling me what? <laughs> and so, so, I take order only from Theodosius. And he did not, he did not send me away. So, you know, just go back to bed. After this, Valentina II is found dead. Now, was he killed by Arbogastes or did he commit suicide or was he killed by somebody else? Who knows? Most people usually assume it was Arbogastes, but actually, I personally don't think so for the fact that it actually was a big headache for him. Uh, he would have probably liked to, to continue as it was. It was perfectly fine with him. Because now not having a Western Roman emperor was a big deal, was a big problem. Uh, he could have sent to Theodosius to ask to appoint a new one, but it was, looked very suspicious. So he decided to do a preventive rebellion. And he agreed with the Senate of Rome to appoint a new Western Roman emperor, a non-entity called Eugenius. Eugenius and he's a non-entity, it doesn't matter. But what matters is the, is the religious policy. The religious policy that they decide, and this is you, you must understand that even at this late hour, in the Roman Senate, there's still plenty of pagans. Probably a majority of the Senate, the Senate is still pagan. And they all they want, they want the recent decision that, that Theodosius just passed a few years, like two years earlier, saying, you know, all temples are closed, everything is banned, you cannot do anything anymore, pagan religion, you cannot do anything. They want this to be, um, to be annulled, and it gets annulled, even though Eugenius is a Christian. So we even have some letters between uh, Ambrose, the bishop of Milan, uh, talking about this topic with, uh, you know, talking with friends and talking to, to the emperor. So we know this happened. We are sure about this, that they, they, there was a more pro-pagan policy. It was not like Julian the Apostate, you know, go back to the old time because at this point it was impossible, but was at least uh, trying to, to, uh, to have a coexistence between, between the ancient religion and Christianity. Let's say this, for Theodosius, of course, all this is unacceptable. And now he can even claim that this is a holy war. Uh, to defeat the pagans, although, as we said, Eugenius was not a pagan. So Theodosius assembles a huge army in the east, most of them gods, not most of them, but a big amount of them are gods. And, he, and in the sources, what we know is that the gods served both as... Um, okay, this is very complicated and no one has a definitive answer, but probably the gods served both as regulars in the regular army, so you have to understand this is a big difference. You know, you are a Roman soldier or you are a federati, 
federati are basically allies and these are not regulars they are just called in for this specific campaign uh, they are paid and then will go back home and they will not be roman soldiers when that this is done and these federati though they don't serve under their own leaders because that would be dangerous so the what the romans appoint three roman general roman generals to you know to to lead them and these three are gainus that is a goth he will be but he's a goth serving as a as a as an official uh, as an officer in the roman army so and he you know he will have actually quite an interesting career after this mm-hmm. then you have so saul he's an alan but again official roman officer he will die in another battle against the goths a uh, few years from now and then you have bakur there the third one and bakur probably was the most important of the three uh at the time so uh and 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 now this battle is very complicated and freaky in so many ways this is in my view and many historians today even more important than adrianople because here is where really the you know the western roman army had not suffered that much so at to this point the western roman army usually traditionally was considered the best of the two uh and you know the western roman empire was poorer but the the the, the soldiers were stronger and they did not suffer at adrianople obviously that was only the eastern roman army um at this battle this would be a massacre uh, so what and this is a civil war so what happens is that theodosius it's a two days battle so it's very rare in antiquity that you have a two day battle theodosius if you know a bit geography you have the balkans you have a big uh, important roman road that went through all the balkans by the way the highway today that crosses the balkans goes the same way so it's always the same the geography is that then you go to basically what today is ljubljana in the capital of slovenia and from there you have several valleys that have a very easy entrance to italy is is the easiest way to get into italy uh crossing the alps all the other crossing in the alps are pretty difficult but this one is pretty easy pretty low so arbogastes decides not to defend the passes in basically almost luring in tedocius tedocius comes out of the um with the army out of the of the pass when it starts opening into a larger valley and then beyond there is the the the, the plains of italy okay and when he, when the army starts getting out they suddenly realize that it's a trap because on both sides on the hills there are units of the uh, of arbogastes and to close the valley the exit of the valley there is unit of arbogastes and the problem for the theodosian army is that they cannot deploy in in you know fully deploy because it's too narrow so only the um you know the the units in front because they are still in a line you know it's a column this is the worst you can be as a as an army to be in a column and being attacked that's how the romans were destroyed at teutoburg so this looks like will you know will end up really badly no so theodosius does the only thing that he can do he, sa- he basically tells the uh, vanguard 
just charge. Try to break it. If we can break the block in front, at least we can get out and then we will figure it out what to do. So who is in front in the vanguard? The gods of Gaines, Saul, and Bakur. So mm. they are in the vanguard and they get this order and they are really the only ones that can do it. And, you know, to their credit, they do it. You know, these are not regular Roman soldiers, but they just go, you know, they say, okay, let's just attack. And basically the, the first day is mostly just the vanguard trying to break out. And the thing is, they do not. So it's a, it's, it, they have horrible losses. You know, our sorcerers, you know, the sorcerers always exaggerate the numbers. They say 10,000 dead gods, only gods. Um, could be lower than that, but definitely was a big deal for the gods because after this battle, they rebelled, saying, uh-uh, we are not going to do this anymore. You're just trying to kill us, uh, you know, for your wars so that we are not a trouble anymore. And that's, by the way, what the Romans said. You know, Orosius is a, is a, he, he's a Roman writer. He says, ah, Theodosius, that first day, won, in reality, the battle because he destroyed, uh, you know, a piece of, of, of the gods that were the, our enemy. And this is, of course, is BS. You know, Theodosius, that night, uh, after this trial of breaking out, was in real trouble. And in fact, there's the story that he, he, he just went to pray, just say, praying God. You know, this is a probably typical Christian uh, historians that write this because they're praying God and want God to intervene. Um, and and I, yeah, the thing that we should say that Bakur, as, as you said, like Zosimus says that he died at this uh, first day of the battle. Uh, he was one of, the, one of the three that died... Uh, the, of the three commanders is the only one that dies. Uh, so he survived Adrianople, but apart, you know, at least according to Zosimus, did not survive. Frigidus. Mm-hmm. Do you want to know how it ends on the second day? <laughs> or <laughs> I mean, we can talk about the second days because I, I don't like cliffhangers. So tell me about the second day. <laughs> so the, the second day, I make a story short, but basically Arbogastes, his main fear at night, that night, was that Theodosius would escape. So this is a perfect trap. So we cannot allow him to escape. So he sends basically one of his commanders with a strong unit. He sends, okay, cut his rear. So we will have it completely trapped. This guy figures out, huh, I'm in a pretty strong negotiating position right now. So he goes to Tedocious and says, you know what? We could join you with... You know, with the right price. <laughs> so, oh no! <laughs> <laughs> and so the and so they do, uh, but even this is not enough to completely tip the balance because the first day was a disaster for Tudosh. But Tudosh says, "Okay, let's try it again. Let's try to break in, break out of the valley." So, not great strategy. Just attack straight ahead. A bit, with a, maybe a bit more preparation this time, but still, it's the same strategy. But then something really freaky happened according to the Christian authors. Zosimus doesn't mention it because he's pagan. And so he doesn't, of course, he doesn't believe in this kind of stuff. But according to the Christian authors, and it is something that is, as I will explain, it is possible, uh, an incredibly strong wind started blowing in favor of the Theodosian army and against the force of Arbogastes. So strong 
that when they uh, when they shot arrows, they would come back to them. Then there would be big dust that would cover completely them. And you know, when you're a soldier, if something like that happens, usually the first thing you think is, okay, some god or some gods, they really don't want this to happen. We let, let's get the hell out of here because <laughs> we are here. Somebody, somebody higher up is is not happy. So. Is this possible? It is theoretically possible because in this specific point in uh, in Slovenia and northeastern Italy, there's some there's a wind called Bora, and mm. the Bora is a, an extremely strong wind, uh, which is basically caused by cold air uh, forming up in the mountains and then rushing down the valleys. Like, but they on some days it, they can achieve like hurricane two, hurricane three strength. So we're talking about a strong wind, very strong. Yeah. Oh my gosh! For a normal wind, it's a. Re- I, I, I imagine that even today, if you go to Trieste, you know, in 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 northeastern Italy, you'll see like hooks on on the streets, because that's where people will hold when when the wind suddenly because it's sometimes it happens very suddenly. So it suddenly suddenly starts blowing, and then you have to hold on in order not to fly away. So you know it's 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 a strong wind. So it could could have happened. And imagine how important this is for Christians. The Christian emperor that defeats the pagan. They weren't really pagans, but you know, let's not get lost in the details. Defeats the pagan with a, a natural wind sent by God. You know, it's like the mm-hmm. the quintessential um, you know manifest destiny of Christianity to win over uh, paganism. You no, know? so so that's how Theodosius ends up winning the battle, and Arbogastus is uh, kills himself, and Eugenius is beheaded, and that's the end of it. Oh my gosh! So like that actually reminds me. You're talking about like those high winds from the mountains, like a few episodes ago. I can't remember which one it was, but I mentioned that there is just like this really strong wind that goes through the Caucasus as well. Yeah, and, yeah. and mainly it's like when you're trying to get to dead event, which is in uh-huh. Russia now. But yeah. there's this like so there's this mountain pass where like what I mentioned was this essentially people wanted to use the Dario Gorge in Georgia mm-hmm. because if they went through their bent or they went around or if they, if they went around the Caucasus, it would take a long time to get around the Caucasus along the Black Sea heading yeah. to Crimea. Or if they went to their bent, they might. There was times of the years where the winds were just so strong you couldn't get through. You, yeah, yeah, yeah. Inside the Daryl Pass, uh, it, I went to the Daryl Pass. You know, I know, I remember. It, it, it's it's such an experience because I was going there, and of course I went there because you know, you know, the, you know, I, I read about it. So, and I was going through through it, and I was thinking, this is so this is so cool, and to look at it from a military point of view, like this deep valley that goes up and up and up, and then it's fairly easy pass, and then down into a very easy valley all the way to Russia, and I can totally see you. And it's the only because you see the Alps, you have lots of passes, lots of passes, mm-hmm. but this the Caucasus is that's really as you are mentioning. There's only three places you can cross it and two are not really convenient there's only one that is convenient uh, and that's and that's it and that's the daryl so like that that super high wind you know armies couldn't get through and that was like one of the reason like why georgia was so very well defensible from the north now i'm not going to get into modern history because of that because you know 
Soviet yeah. Union and the Georgia and the Russians happen, but for most of the time, most of the invasions come from either come from the south. Basically, you either have to come th- through the sea or from the south. Yeah, yeah, and that yeah. is and like the north only happens in more modern history, and, unless you're the the Mongols, and that's a different story too. Yeah, yeah, but the Mongols, no one, no one, no can one, stop no one can stop the Mongols. <laughs> so it's but it's like it used to bring it back to Georgia. It was just like that. I can see how that mountain pass affects things. It's like you were talking about it, and I was like, "This is literally what happens in Georgia." Yeah, like, yeah. Well, it's Azerbaijan and Russia now, but this is literally what happened in that area. And it was like, yeah, that that is something people can see as like divine favors. Like, oh, the wind's in my favor, and it's so just because it, they were coming because they could have been the complete opposite way too. Uh, exactly, but you know, history sometimes is defined by these these little things. I mean, no one can know for sure that these really happened. Mm-hmm. I will stress it again. You know, sometimes Christian authors just fill in the, the you know, blanks and just to show that it really is God that is deciding history. So who knows? But but it is realistic. Um, it is realistic, which is one of those things. It's like, oh, wow, this could have happened. And like, and you said bring it back to Bakur. Um, so I met, you mentioned he died in, in the first day, but some historians mentioned that he may have returned to Kartli after to rule after his stint with the Roman military. But from the list that I'm using, this is probably isn't true because the first Bakur we see is like either way too early or way too late. Yeah. And like, it's weird because you have the Armenian historian, Moses of Horonazzi. He mentions there is a King Bakur in 415. But hmm. there isn't. So this is not very likely. So it's like you might be able to see like, oh, he, he survived the battle. But like if we're going based off of what Moses of Hordenazi says, it's very likely that he died there. But the interesting thing is, is that some sources mention that Rufinus probably got his account of the Christianization of Georgia in 403 A.D., Ah, that will make it uh, impossible because the Battle of Frigidus is 394. So 394, yeah. So, Which is a whole decade after Bakur supposedly died. Yeah, or maybe it's not the same Bakur again, or 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 he survived. He, unfortunately, yeah, lo- he, lost he to history. Tell. Lost to history. It's lost very sad when that happened. Because we don't know, did Bakur die or did he survive? Because we have Zosimus saying one thing. We have, you know, Rufinus saying this has happened in 403. But one thing I, I am guessing may have happened is he may have picked it up from from Bakur. This is my complete opinion. This is what I yeah. think happened. He may have, you know, told Bakur. Bakur may have told him about it early, before he died when he was, you know, the Comes Domesticorum or he was a Dukes. Mm-hmm. And because, you know, how writing used to work, it took forever to get anything written. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And yeah, so, like, it may have taken, you know, Rufinus ten, nine years to write the whole story. Yeah, it could be. That could be. It's potentially possible. So I, my whole thing is it may have happened earlier, and then Rufinus just took nine years to write it. But, you know, I read it, and it's only, like, 20 pages. So, <laughs> so but, like, you know, they're also writing in, like, Greek, Latin, so it may have taken longer, and he may have been oh. trying to, like, Make or sure. he, he took notes then and then put it aside and then pick mm-hmm. it, picked it up later. Who knows? It, it's yeah. also that is possible. So, but yeah. <laughs> unfortunately, it, it's 
it's interesting that in this period of history we do have so many details because uh, there are some periods of, of Roman history or you know this time history where, where we have fewer details, but yet you know things like that can fall through the cracks. Yeah, it's it's crazy, but I just want to know what. So, like after every all the research and everything you did, because like I have a thought about Bakor. What do you think about him? Yeah, no, it's uh, you know in a way as I was trying to say today, uh, his story is. At the same time, remarkable because being in two of the most important battles uh, in in Roman history, it's a big deal. Make mm-hmm. no mistake. At the same time, it's unremarkable in the sense that it's so common. Uh, it's as we have seen a prince of the Franks, Ricomeres. He becomes he fights at Adrianople. Then he becomes um, a con- consul a few years later. And uh, we have uh, Bauto, which was a Frankish uh, prince. He becomes a general. His son is Arbogastes, probably. And the daughter will become um, uh, a Roman Augusta and uh, and Elia Eudoxia, which will rule uh, oh. Constantinople for four years, basically. Mm-hmm. Uh, she will be the real ruler of the Eastern Roman Empire. Um, so, so in that sense... His story looks remarkable to us because it's a Iberian prince that went to fight for the Romans and fought into the of the most significant battles there are. Uh, uh, but in that sense, it's not as remarkable. It's it's something that happens. Yeah, but if, like for me, for someone who's like, because you were like, you mentioned to me, Roberto. Do you know Bacur- you know Bacurius the Iberian? I'm like. Who is that? And I was looking him up. I'm like, this is fantastic. I didn't know about this. Because like, I haven't gotten into it yet. And I was just like, oh, my God, this is, I can't wait to cover this guy. And, you know, I was like, you know, Marco mentioned him. He is he is writing the, you know, he's writing a book about this. And I I want to talk to him about Bakur because he, you know, he's doing the story Italia. Of course, he knows his, you know, his Roman history. And I think it's just great because. I, I'm personally like amazed because it's one of the few people we know about that's not part of the royal family. Well, okay, he is, but he's someone who's like but, not a direct king. He's not a king. So I can see how that in that sense is a complete, uh, it's really interesting. And, and think how incredible it is to have the history of a, a secondary character like this. We can track, even with all the gaps and the holes and the uncertainties, we can still track the history of a guy through the years, through 20 plus years. Um, and we know several sources that talk about him. It's not just one. You, you have Rufinus, you have uh, Ammianus Marcellinus, you have Zosimus, you have, and you, you have also others. Mm-hmm. So it's very uh, interesting in that sense. Yeah, and I think it's just really cool because it's like he's also the person who basically gave us the story of how Georgia converted which I think makes him very important because without him, again, we wouldn't have that. Again, that's that's mind-blowing. No, that's that's really mind-blowing. And it really tells you how much we're talking about one civilization here. Mm-hmm. With different... Vari- but we're talking about this Mediterranean classical civilization, which, which in a way, it's, it's an entire world that everybody can live in. And they can be a Georgian prince and die in Italy. Uh, and have fought 
in Palestine and in the Balkans. Think, think how far away this... I mean, our world is in, immensurably bigger than antiquity. But think, is like today, to compare it, is like today saying, oh, there's um Iranian that went to fight for the French and then uh, uh, was an important person in Brazil and then ended up dying in America. So in comparison, uh, it, it's, it's a big... You know, lives could actually span uh, almost the entire uh, known world at the time. Mm-hmm. All righty. So I think that's where we're going to end it about Bakur. So, Marco, where can people find you if they want to know more or, you know, talk to you about anything? Ah, yeah. So, of course, my podcast, Story d'Italia, it's uh, everywhere. I also have a, a, an account called... Uh, Italia Storia, so written like Italia in Italian and Storia. Um, and that's, I have a website and uh, I have social media, Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. Every day I try to post uh, one thing related to the time I'm covering. And I usually go everywhere. So, uh, you know, and you can easily click translate on these social media. So th- this is this is also for non-Italian speakers. Um, you have... Uh, uh, you know, and I make posts about that because I'm curious. So I've made many posts about Georgia, by the way, uh, and Lazica, Lazican Wars. Mm-hmm. I covered in detail. I talked about Petra, you know, the ruins of Petra. You you will talk about it quite a bit. <laughs> in a I few, can imagine. In a few episodes, is a big deal in the Lazican Wars and, and other things like that. But of mm-hmm. course, I talk, you know. And uh, I also wrote a book, if someone reads it, you know, can read in Italian. It's called uh, uh, Per un pugno di barbari for a fistful of barbarians. So, of course, with an eye on uh, spaghetti western there. <laughs> so, <laughs> for a fistful of dollars, for a fistful of barbarians, which tells the history of the third century crisis. So, from the beginning of the crisis to a Diocletian included. And uh, I had a lot of fun to cover all the uh, the, I love complicated uh, uh, pieces of history, so that are that that are difficult or they're very dark, you know. So 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 the third century was was fantastic in that sense. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and as you mentioned, I'm writing a book now on uh, um, on the gods actually. So they, it will be the history of the Visigoths. So that this all this was very fresh in in the memory um, because I'm doing the research right now and. Finally, I've made the podcast on Storytel. So if you're on Storytel, and it's called uh, Guerre in Civili, Uncivil Wars. And mm-hmm. this uh, talks about the social war, at least the first season. Then I should make more seasons in the future, hopefully. And it talks about the social war, first century before Christ. Oh, that's awesome. And that's the one with, um, which one is that? That is... It's before Marius and Silla. You That's what Mar- I was thinking about, Marius and Silla. So. Yeah, yeah uh, Sulla, of course, in English and Latin. In Italian, it's Silla. I don't know why we change it, but in, in English, you kept the, the actually the, the correct version, which is Sulla. Mm. Uh, so, so the, the, yeah, yeah. And the, it's, very, it's a very interesting thing, piece of history, because it's really when the Roman Republic starts spinning out of control. Mm-hmm. Um, I think up until the social war, whatever problems they had could have been potentially solved. Uh, after the social war, is like uh, there's no. It's like, eh, 
it's like uh, one ticket uh, without return towards autocracy. Yeah, I, I totally get it. Well, thank you so much, Marco. And we're so glad to have had you on the show today. No, thank you, Roberto. It's like fantastic. And uh, and I, I really hope to go back to Georgia. Is is really one of my favorite country in the world. No, it's also one of my favorite ones. And I can't wait to go to Italy and also hang out with you in person. Cause, exactly. Cause exactly. It, it's so crazy because Marco and I were in Houston at the same we, time. And we, well, we and called it, a meet. We called a meet. <laughs> we couldn't meet because I was busy working. And I was like, oh, let's meet here. Like, I'm doing this like... I can't come. I found out last minute. So I was like, oh, darn. And now I'm in Pennsylvania. So it's like, Marco, you better come to New York sometime. <laughs> Pennsylvania, you know, I have a brother-in-law there. So, you know, I may, I may, I may show up uh, unexpected. <laughs> all right. Sounds great. So I'm going to put all the information for Marco's websites. And you can, I'll even try to put his book down there. So if you want to purchase a book on Italian, you can do so. I don't know. I will probably try to get it just to say I, I have a book in Italian. <laughs> um, I, I can read some Italian. Yo sono un ragazzo and all that. Uh, if you know Spanish, uh, you, you, you'll figure it out. <laughs> exactly. Um, well, thank you so much, Marco. Thank you, Roberto.